Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. She Dynasty is back in New York, and soon I will be talking candidly to Amanda Baldwin, the president of the wildly popular indie brand Supergoop. Supergoop has been a true disruptor in the sunscreen category, and their mission is to change the way you think about sunscreen. But first, I'd like to introduce my co-host today, Rohini Michelson. Rohini is a beauty and lifestyle influencer and content creator, and she's had the pleasure of working with brands like Glossier, Majuri, Laura Mercier, Chanel Beauty, and of course, Supergoop. Hi, Rohini. Thank you for joining me today. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So when I first set up the interview with Amanda and her team, they had a short list of co-hosts that they wanted me to reach out to, and you were actually first on their list. (laughs) So um, I wanted to understand, what is your relationship with the Supergoop brand so far? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's been a really good relationship. It's been a great relationship, actually. It's like a very close. I actually talk to people. I get coffee with my PR contact. It's like it's very nice. We're actually friends and we talk on the regular. So awesome. I value it a lot. And do you use a Supergoop product? Yes, of course. Of course you do. <laughs> what is What are your favorite products? I really like the mineral sunscreen. I put that on every day before my makeup. I get everybody to use it. The hand cream because it has SPF in it and I don't want H-pots on my hands. And then also the lip balm. I'm obsessed with the lip balm. Wow. I love that you're thinking about age spots so young on your hands. (laughs) Something I wish I would have done. I've been trained. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Rohini, tell us a little bit about your craft, what you do every day. Oh my gosh. Uh, I always say it's really hard to describe because every day is really different. It's kind of like a mixture of a lot of emails and then laying stuff all over my floor when there's good lighting and taking a bunch of pictures. But I also make YouTube videos, um, do like mostly skincare, makeup reviews, some fashion-y stuff. Perfect. And what are your personal future career goals? Ooh, I would like to have my own brand, probably home decor. That would be the dream. And then maybe in Target. That's like my big, big dream, have a line in Target. That's a good one. All right. (laughs) So one last question before we bring Amanda on. Um, Tell us, why were you excited to talk to Amanda today, and what do you hope to learn from her? Um, There's so much I want to learn. I'm very curious just to see how she got to where she is today. I feel like every step is so important, so I really like to learn that about people so I can emulate it. (laughs) Beautiful. All right. Well, Amanda will be joining us in a second, so we're excited to talk to her. Woohoo! I'm excited. Hi, Amanda. Super excited to chat with you and learn about your personal journey and your four S's and what the future holds for you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Before we get started, I want to hear a little bit about your childhood. I understand that you were a gymnast, and in your pre-interview questionnaire, I asked what your first spark was, and I loved your answer. You said that it was to defy gravity. So I assume that once you accomplished that goal, you probably have learned at a very young age that you could do anything. Yeah, I mean, I actually love to talk about my gymnastics. Um, I certainly was never going to be an Olympian, but at the same time, 
it had this profound effect on me. It was something I started doing when I was about four and did all the way through high school. And yeah, I mean, it literally was physically defying gravity. And I kind of always explain to people that, you know, when you're up on the balance beam, you have a thousand eyes on you uh, and nowhere to hide. You have to be okay falling off and getting right back up there. You can fall a hundred times. You still have to finish the routine. And I think that sort of discipline of the practice, but also just being okay, being in the spotlight and just falling flat on your face and being able to handle that, I think really impacted me a lot. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting about gymnastics is that it's a team sport and an individual sport at the same time. So you're a member of a team and your score counts towards um, how the team performs, but you're also evaluated as how you perform as an individual. Kind of like what happens in real life when you grow up. Exactly. And I think that kind of a lot of what I think about as a leader uh, and everything that I try and create in Supergoop is kind of how to have individuals who are having incredible experiences and then how do those all intertwine into, you know, a single great goal. Beautiful. So where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, I've made all of 20 blocks in my entire life, as I say to everybody. Grew up in New York, a uh, very different era, uh, it was 80s, and it was definitely less exciting probably than it is now. Um, but I'm the oldest of three children and you know, went to all-girls school for 13 years on the Upper East Side. That laid this kind of incredible foundation for me. It kind of never occurred to me not to speak up. Never occurred to me that I couldn't do what I set my mind to. I'm very grateful for that. Awesome. So let's fast forward. So you um, went to Harvard and then to Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and got your MBA. Not too shabby. Your journey up to that point is my 15-year-old daughter's dream. So I want to ask, you know, what is your advice to young adults who dream about going to Ivy League colleges? And, you know, there's only a 2 to 3% acceptance rate. And so, you know, what can I tell my daughter? How can she get in one day? Work hard. It's my number one. Everything in life is about working hard. I think my parents instilled in that me very early on back to the gymnastics story like you don't get good at it by just showing up you get good at it because you just put in the effort uh and so a big believer that hard work is never overrated uh and i think also you know as i progressed in my academic career i think i sort of took a lot of joy in it uh and really love learning Uh, and i think that Uh, A lot of success in life, a lot of academic success, professional success, whatever it is, is sort of being passionate and enjoying what you do. Um, Even if you're working hard at it, it's not supposed to be a grind. Uh, I think that's when you know you're probably not doing the thing that's right for you. It's when that hard work is exciting and motivating to you. Is there a huge amount of pressure and expectation to excel and become, you know, a leader of a company once you graduate from a school like that? You know, I think one of the things that I loved about my undergraduate education was that everybody went in so many different directions. So business was just one of many choices. I I have roommates who are in medicine and law, nonprofit world. Um, I think it's much more about living up to that potential. I mean, I think when you're given an education like that and you have access to an education like that, better use it to do something good for the world. I mean, I think that to me, and and whether it means running a company or something else, I think I do feel a level of, you know, need to give back and to do something with that. What was your first job at a college and what did you think you wanted ultimately as a career path at that point? So actually a couple blocks from here, uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs uh, as an investment banking analyst. 
with my first job, I still am so incredibly grateful for the foundation that was laid there. Honestly, I don't think I knew whether or not it would be my long-term calling. I sort of have a theory in life, especially early in your career, to just kind of go learn as much as you possibly can. I was just really fascinated in learning about the underpinnings of kind of what created a great company. Uh, and Goldman just, I mean, at age 21, 22, I was sitting in rooms with CEOs. Uh, and that's, you know, it's unbelievable. And it's just really that underpinning and that foundation of running a business is pretty profound. Understood. So you started as an investment banking analyst, and then you worked as a private equity associate. And then it seems like you made a big shift in 2006 to become a director at Clinique Marketing. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, business school in between, but yeah. Business school in between those two. So how did you decide to take on more of a creative role in your career? Yeah, I mean, I always have loved brands. Uh, And I remember in my New York life early on, walking around, looking at different stores, it's before the internet, uh, and wondering why some were successful and others were not, and just being really fascinated by brands, and I'm sure we can have lots of good conversation about this, as kind of what were those stories, what was that um, emotional reaction to things that created success, and as much as I loved the world of finance, I had this side of my brain that I felt like was going underutilized. It was the part of my brain that wanted to design, wanted to talk about color, wanted to talk about the emotional aspects of what was going to make a brand successful or not, not just the numbers in the spreadsheet. And so, you know, I remember so vividly the moment where I said, oh, my goodness, I think I might be on the wrong side of the table. Right. Um, I actually read that. I was going to ask if you could paint that picture for us a little bit more, what it feels like to be on the wrong side of the table. Yeah. And and that sort of, I mean, I loved investing. I still love investing and think about kind of getting back on that side of the table. So wrong is maybe too strong of a word, but curious about the other side of the table. And it it was, I was going through, um, we were at Apex, we were investing in Phillips Van Hughes and PBH to help them buy Calvin Klein. And I was sitting there, and my job responsibility was to make sure, again, going back to the financial modeling, that we understood the underpinnings of the business. And then we took a tour around the headquarters, and the creative director was there. And that was the guy that I was like, oh, my goodness, I want to sit with you all day. Right. Uh, and I think that was a big light bulb moment for me to sort of figure out what that was all about. I think there are so many women who work at a company who maybe envy or secretly wish they had somebody else's position or role. And they feel like it's, you know, leaps and bounds from their own skill set. So what's your advice to people that feel that way? So I get this question all the time. People in financing, how did you get over, you know, to doing what you do? What can I do? I'm interested in that. And I always tell them, you know, just figure out how to get your foot in the door. Um, You know, I took huge steps back and everybody thought I was totally crazy in business school. I was swimming in the wrong direction. Um, But I got just sort of comfortable with that. And I also learned that I had to figure out how to bring value from my skill set and how to translate what I did know into something that was valuable for the companies that I was interested in working with Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of learning their language and learning how what I knew would translate into that language. Um, And just not being afraid to take a smaller job and a smaller paycheck and a lower title and just kind of get in there and make it happen. I think that's a really good um, kind of learning moment for people because I think people feel like they invest so much time in a certain career path. And once they realize what their passion is, which sometimes it's hard to figure it out, 
it's okay to give yourself permission to take a few steps back to move forward because ultimately you will be on the path that you want to be on. And so in the moment, it feels sometimes like a a big and hard, you know, hard decision to make. But I I can't encourage that enough more. It's funny. I never really questioned it. People around me questioned it. Why is she doing this? Uh, and I was just like, well, because this is what I'm excited about. And I just and I never I've never looked back. I've never wondered, gosh, what would it have been like if I did something else? You know, I just believe in careers are kind of a test, learn, iterate model. And you have to start somewhere and you got to learn. And then you sort of pick your head up and you say, OK, well, what do I like? What do I not like? And how do I get more of what I like and maybe get rid of some of the things that I don't love about it? Um and also, like, my biggest gut check is always, do you want to be your boss? Right. Uh, and if you can't say yes to that question, then you probably need to iterate again. Oh, boy. I'm nervous to ask my employees that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean that, you know, it's just, like, in the long run. I think we all work so hard that you got to feel like you, you know what you're in it for. Absolutely. How do you feel that your experience in finance has translated to all the roles that you've had in marketing? Well, I think the analytical side of what I did is really important. And I think marketing has become more and more analytical. Uh, I think now that we have access to data uh, from digital, you know, whatever we're doing from a digital point of view, that kind of totally changes how you think about things. So I think really being numbers oriented is pretty profound in marketing. Again, I think it needs to be balanced. Right. And creatives can't hide behind just being creative anymore because now we can track every single thing. So understanding the other side of the uh, fence is important as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I and I say that with a huge caveat that I believe that the magic of brands is not trackable, doesn't fall show up in a spreadsheet and is one of the biggest dangers of the fact that you can track things now more. Uh, And it's, you know, an ongoing conversation that I constantly try and help us as a team balance is, you know, yes, there are going to be numbers and they do not lie. But at the same time, this special sauce is something that's never going to show up there. So after about three and a half years, you moved to LVMH to become the vice president of retail development, Dior Beauty and Marketing. Tell us um, what were some of the valuable career lessons or snags that you overcame from working there? So I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years and, you know, I think certainly that experience or any experience that I've had is just how to be really thoughtful about working with a lot of different types of people, lots of different disciplines, lots of different functions. Uh, You know, that was a company where there was all sorts of cross-cultural conversations and just really understanding the human sitting across from you um, was constantly, you know, the biggest challenge and also I think the biggest learning for me um, and something that I really held on to really tightly. So from there, you eventually moved on to be the chief marketing officer at Strivecton. So what was exciting about that next part of your journey, and why did you feel like that was the right next move for you? Yeah, I mean, that was within, um, I was working for a private equity firm that owned the business. And that was, you know, sort of, I think the beginning of my understanding and stepping sort of down in scale in size of businesses and getting really excited about what could happen when you showed up at day one. Or maybe, you know, not quite day one, but sort of early on in a consumer uh, brand's business. So I had worked at Clinique and at Dior, which are these two big, beautiful, unbelievable, multi-billion dollar brands. Uh, And when I joined El Catterton, I was starting to work with businesses that were hundreds of millions, maybe tens of millions, you know, much, much smaller. And I think what was so exciting for me about that is I really, I don't think I realized what an entrepreneur I was. Uh, And these big organizations, I was always off trying to start new parts of the business and even in the in the larger companies. I think I just kind of 
never occurred to me that that wasn't, you know, change wasn't a good idea and something new wasn't a good idea. So I figured out how to make that happen. But to have that be 100% of what you're doing every day really started to click for me. Yeah, it's much easier to make an impact and make your mark in a smaller size company than it is in a larger one, just because obviously there's a lot of politics involved and it's so established and just, you know, just the sheer size of it. Yeah, the sheer size. I mean, it's sort of, you know, you're steering something that's really huge. And obviously, you know, and I could not do what I do now without the learnings that I had of those big organizations. But I think I just realized that I was more cut out for the, the young upstarts than I probably even realized. Um, and it was certainly a big sort of mental shift for me because I had, had this expectation when you were asking earlier about expectations, like the expectation when I graduated from Wharton was, oh, you know, you're going to go run a big Fortune 500 company. That was what everyone was telling me. Uh, and getting okay with sort of this different perception of myself was probably one of the harder things for me. Well, it seems like you're on that path, so (laughs) we're excited for you. So, um, you know, on that note, I'm seeing an awesome pattern here as you continue to prove success and are given, you know, kind of bigger titles. Um, So you've eventually ended up as the president at Supergoop. Yes. To me, that sounds like it might be one of the coolest companies to work for. It has so much buzz, so much success, and, you know, it's obviously had a lot of growth recently. How did the company's mission and your personal values align? I think that, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about if you're going to have access to this incredible education, all these opportunities, how do you do something with your time that's going to actually give back? So I think it was really exciting for me to join a company that, you know, was created not to make money, but to change the world uh, and to help stop the epidemic of skin cancer. And kind of having a mission like that is, I don't know, just you get up in the morning in a different way. Um, And it's a really, really powerful true north. So that was really exciting for me. I also, as somebody who had been around the beauty industry for so long, was constantly, I mean, I was convinced that, you know, and I am convinced that SPF is just the most important thing you can do for your skin every day. And so it's a very easy thing for me to sort of sit there and talk about. Yep. Uh, And I saw in this business the things that made Clinique and Dior multi-billion dollar brands. Uh, And I was like, oh my goodness, this is the beginning of something that's going to be that one day. And what a gift to be given to get to, to lead that. So a few of my staff wanted me to ask you a question. What exactly is the role of a president and a company? I think it depends. Every organization. So I would not um, not want to make gross generalizations about anything other than what my job is. Maybe it's easier to explain. So, you know, look, it's my job to make sure that this brand knows where it's going, build the team to get there and help that team in the moments where they need help. It's a very, very interesting moment that you go through in your career when you've been the person responsible for the marketing team and all the way down to the last little decision that you're making and just kind of take this amazing mission and this incredible brand and figure out how to turn it into a large, profitable business that employs a lot of people who are having a great time and produces a product that really does help people. So marketing kind of fits under your umbrella? Yeah, I mean, I have marketing, sales, operations, finance, human resources, you name it, product development, everything reports up into me. Love it. How does your role integrate with the founder and CEO of the company, Holly? Seamlessly. I mean, we have an incredible relationship. Holly is truly a visionary who has always been ahead of her time. She created this company back in 2007 before there was Instagram or disruption or anyone even quite frankly cared about SPF the way that she does and the way that people are starting to now. And I think, you know, the best way to explain it is that we've never had to talk about it. 
uh, that it's just so obvious what I'm supposed to do and what she's supposed to do. And In a sense, have you taken over a lot of the roles that she used to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, and I was never, I've never been a founder, so I, I wouldn't want to try and explain what that experience is like. But I think if I, I've heard her talk about it and what she would say is that, you know, in the beginning, she did everything, right? She didn't have any employees until about six years ago. We just celebrated the anniversaries of her first two employees. And so as a founder, you're kind of, and Rainey, I'm sure you can relate to this if you're starting your own business, you know, you you kind of are in it and you're juggling a thousand different things um, and you're doing all of them really, really well, but in a different way than probably somebody who has a business. You know, Holly was a harpist and a teacher before she mm-hmm. took this uh, took on this company. And so I think, you know, I bring a totally different point of view to the uh, to the conversation. And, you know, I think that, you know, one plus one is 10. So that's really what we think about. Fantastic. All right. So let's uh, change gears. Let's talk a little bit about Supergoop. So why has um, putting on SPF become such an obsession? And how come no one cared when I was a kid? I think, you know, we're all getting a lot more savvy about our general health and wellness. I think you see it across how people are eating, how they're working out, how they're just thinking about how they sleep. Uh, We, you know, and we sort of say, look, if you're going to work out and drink your green juice and wear your Lululemon and not wear your SPF, like you're just missing part of that movement. Uh, So I think people are just much more conscious of just taking care of themselves. And that's effectively what SPF is. Yeah, I think back to, you know, when I was a child, I feel like it was almost the opposite. Everyone was slathering on oil. Oh, yeah, my mom, too. The the (laughs) foil and the whole thing. (laughs) Needed to be tanner. And, you know, I guess we just didn't have the research and the data to understand the Yeah, I mean, we, we, we like to... Think about, you know, we'll know our job is done when you think about wearing SPF the way you think about putting a seatbelt on in a car. Like, of course I'm going to do that, right? But it, there was a moment in time when people didn't. So you know that I recently interviewed uh, Linda Wells, the founder um, and editor-in-chief of Allure magazine for over 25 years. I mean, she's obviously Total an icon, icon in the business, <laughs> like really yes. big deal. And so I asked her of all the products that she has seen and reviewed in her entire life, what was the one miracle anti-aging product? Everyone wanted me to ask her this. And of course, her answer was so simple. It was SPF. So I Thank mean, you, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> so there are so many products now to navigate through. Tell us how Supergoop is different than other SPF brands. For us, it's all about the product. Uh, and our big points of difference on product is when Holly originally created the company, she went out and did a lot of research on like, why doesn't anyone wear SPF? And it came back kind of obvious, but pretty profound because people don't like the way it feels on their skin. Uh, and when you try a Supergoop product, you all of a sudden say, oh, my goodness. Well, wait a second. This totally changes my point of view about this. Um, so we have products. One of our big hits is a product called Unseen Sunscreen, which is totally clear, invisible, weightless, doesn't smell. We made a big long list of all the reasons why people don't wear SPF, and we just started crossing them off. Uh, and so we're going to figure out how to create a product that just takes down those barriers. So that's first and foremost. Second is being really focused on ingredients. Uh, There's a ton of conversation out there now about is sunscreen safe for me? Is it safe for the coral reefs? You know, that has been first and foremost on our list way before any of this even started. Uh, Really motivated by Holly. She was the first person to create a sunscreen without parabens, without synthetic fragrance, without oxybenzone. Chemists told her there was no way to get it done. Uh, And, you know, that list of no ingredients now has grown to hundreds. Uh, And so... We think not just about the sunscreen actives, but the other 90% of the formula. So 
ingredients are just, you know, we make our lives really, really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to formulate SPF that feels good, that works, uh, and that is clean ingredients, but we do that. And then we sprinkle a lot of magic on top. So innovation around and creativity around how you're going to deliver that SPF. Mm-hmm. We have some crazy stuff that's going to be launching in the next couple of weeks uh, that's going to blow your mind about like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this has SPF in it. Uh, and so, you know, we think that if you if you want to change people's habits, uh, and we're talking about a pretty serious subject, you actually don't do that by scaring them into saying, oh, I'm not going to get skin cancer. You do it by wooing them. Uh, and one of my favorite words, too. Uh, and to, you know, dreaming about it and enjoying it. Uh, and I think that's the piece of the puzzle that's sort of been missing in the category. Um, that there's always been plenty of SBF, but nobody wanted to use it. If someone hasn't tried your product, what are the one or two must-have, must-try products? Well, we always believe that it's really about sort of what's your personal lifestyle. But I will I will share my favorites. <laughs> um, so Super Screen we just launched, which is... A daily moisturizer with SPF 40, blue light protection, which is uh, the rays that are coming at you from your phone, pollution. I mean, we really think about protection on a, on a broad scale. Wait, hold on. You just said I have to worry about the rays that are coming from my phone? Yeah, so there, you have part of the spectrum of light. It includes blue light, uh, which is basically phones, computers. You know, there's some early research that's showing that those are certainly things that, you know, can age us. Uh, so, you know, but we have... Easy answers to everything. Nobody needs to be needs to be worried. My other favorite is Defense Refresh, uh, which is an answer to the question of okay, I'm supposed to reapply sunscreen every two hours, uh, which you, you know, people might not know. Um, it actually it breaks down any sunscreen does in indirect light. But I'm already wearing makeup. Like, please don't make me take my makeup off, right? So this is actually a setting spray that smells delicious and comes in a little one ounce thing you pop in your handbag and you just spray it, you know, when you're walking outside or whatever else it is. So I think those are probably my two favorites, and I could go on forever and ever, but I'll, I'll stop myself there. <laughs> and where can you buy Supergoop? Uh, you can buy it on supergoop.com. Um, Sephora is a big partner of ours. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Uh, walk us through your personal morning beauty routine. It's always changing because we, I always have a lineup of little white lab samples of something that we're creating. Uh, but, you know, definitely I'm a, you know, I got into, I was never really into beauty, which is kind of strange. I ended up in the beauty industry and then went for my training at Clinique and then all of a sudden ended up with a multi-step routine. Uh, so, but I'm always trying something new. For a company like Supergoop, um, what's more important, the relationship with you, that you have with customers online or in the retail environment? Both. Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, your relationship with people that are using your product is the, you know, that's everything. Um, it seems like so many brands are shifting to, you know, just online and making sure that the relationship is so strong. And just as you know, you know, I work in marketing and there's yeah. so much research coming out that, you know, Gen Z, which is the next group of people with the most influence and in buying power, are actually going to be more attracted to going back into the stores. Yeah. And so it's important to, you know, you know, build that relationship as well. And so, you know, we're, we're finding some shifts in behaviors. So, you know, we're just kind of wondering, is there is that something that you guys are thinking about as kind of younger g- generations come in? Is there going to be a shift in how we start to market to to younger generations? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read that, too, about Gen Z's wanting to go back into stores. I mean, I think we're all human. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the magic pieces of the beauty industry and the reasons I fall in love with it is it is such a kind of profoundly intimate experience to be in a store and to have someone sell your product. I remember being at Dior, and I'm not a very good makeup artist by any stretch of the imagination, but I used to work in store once in a while. 
And I would do someone's makeup and they would start crying about, you know, what was going on in their life. And that really has stuck with me. Uh, And so I think as much as we live in a digital Instagram driven world, I think that's often where people discover a product. But I think they often fall in love in real life. Um, It's kind of refreshing to hear that people are maybe going to go back to that, you know, tactical experience and walking into a store. Especially the beauty category. I mean, I think that it is so experiential. Uh, And I think that, you know, and I think it's not really about one or the other. I think for a long time there was all this conversation about, well, just digital. But I think it's about how all the pieces of the puzzle come together. Are there any other brands outside your category that you you admire or think are just doing an incredible job? That's a great question. Uh, You know, I, I admire a lot of the fellow disruptors out there. You know, I think that what's been fun for me about this brand is it's picked my head up from being solely focused on the beauty industry, which I always love, uh, and made me think a lot about brands like Warby Parker, Casper, some of these other guys that are out there that are just totally changing people's attitudes to another category. Uh, And I really admire them, and I really admire these brands that have been built from scratch and how incredibly thoughtful they've been about every single detail. And I think that you know, that goes back to the magic of stuff that doesn't show up in a spreadsheet. I think when we fast forward 20, 30, 50 years, I mean, at LVMH, the average age of a brand, I think it's 100 years. So that's how I think about time. Uh, I think that you're going to see some of these new brands that are being created that have been done so thoughtfully. They're going to be the ones that are going to stand the test of time. So I want to talk a little bit about your leadership style. Um, what in your mind makes an effective leader and what qualities are you most proud of in yourself? The job of a leader actually is not to have a personal style, but to change your style to fit the human beings that you're interacting with. So I've always kind of believed that it's, you know, it's not about me. It's about the person sitting on the other side of the table or the group on the other side of listening to you on a phone on the conference call and really trying to connect with what's going through their heads um, and realizing that, you know, I'm only successful if I connect with something that's meaningful for them uh, and that that varies by individual It often varies by discipline. So how somebody who's running operations is thinking about the world is so profoundly different than someone who's on your creative team. And you have to, you change language to speak to them differently. And it's not about people adopting to your personal style. You know, that all being said, I think that I believe in being a good person and doing the right thing and that if people are happy and learning, the rest usually takes care of themselves, that nobody does good work if they're feeling afraid or shamed into something or, you know, not sure what to do, that people do great work because they understand where you're trying to go and they're excited about joining you there. So I think that's probably the one thing I would say is a universal, but everything else is about really getting into the specificity of that individual or that department or that group or how they're thinking. I think this is an incredible insight. And when I read it, um, I thought, wow, you know, how can I apply this to, you know, my own leadership style? Um, You know, you're right. Every time you get in a room with a group of people, whether it's a creative or someone, you know, in HR or someone more on the business side, they're processing information in a very, very different way. And so it's super important that you understand who you're talking to and how to kind of craft your message to that person. So I think that is really um, a key takeaway that people can take away from this today. Yeah, I've always said perception is reality. And even if you have the best of intentions, if other people are interpreting it a different way, it doesn't matter what you were trying to do. It matters how they perceive it. 
How does someone on your team um, really impress you or show you they're ready for more What or what's next for them? You know, I think that I'm a big believer in, and I listen to your podcast, uh, this sort of idea of I'll give anybody a chance as long as you have this sort of attitude of like, I'm going to hustle and I'm going to make it happen. So what really stands out to me are the people who don't wait for the, hey, can you please go do this, who show up at the table with 10 other things that they want to go do and aren't waiting for, especially in an early stage business. I mean, you know, it's all about kind of just getting out there and making it happen uh, and coming to the table with potential solutions. They don't necessarily have to be the answers. Um, but just but showing that you just showing that you about thought that about it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not afraid of, you know, and we have plenty of people on our team. In fact, it's something that I pride myself on who are first time in whatever job they're doing. Um, but they have the instincts because I think you can teach anybody anything, but you can't teach them work ethic or instincts or those kind of things. So coming to the table with more than you were asked and always being um, solution oriented. That's a big part of it. Those are big. Yeah. I believe and I'm sure you'll agree that any leader will always admit that they have you know, room for their own personal growth and improvement. So what's one area um, that you personally wish that you could focus on and grow and excel in? Great question. Uh, I always am thinking, (laughs) I probably have the downfall of thinking always about like what else could I do better, differently. A lot of it comes down to specificity of, you know, how could I get that person to a better place? Like what am I not connecting with with them to kind of help them be more successful? So it's very, very specific, again, to the individual versus macro stuff. I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot and I read a lot about sort of how to become a leader in a bigger and bigger organization. So this team is growing. It's the biggest team I've ever had the you know pleasure of getting to lead. And I think more and more about the transition that we're going through where maybe that one-on-one is going to become harder, uh, where you know I might have one-on-one with my direct reports, but my ability to do that all the way through the organization the way that I could in the beginning is moving away from me. Uh, and so I think what I'm thinking about as I grow as a leader for the next phase of this company is like, how do I start to translate that philosophy into something that works on a bigger scale? I think that's awesome. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, have you had any powerful mentors in your life? And what is one of the most valuable things that you've learned from them? So many. Um, I have been so lucky to work for truly legends, whether they were in my days in finance um, or in the beauty industry. The one thing I would say about you know leadership style or whatever it is, like what I have, I watch everybody really carefully and have pulled things from every single one of them. And everybody's been so different. So the mentors and the people that have been part of my life, everybody's coming at the world again in a unique point of view. And I think that I've kind of I've just absorbed different things from different people. And I I can find myself sometimes saying, oh, you know, I'm channeling so and so right now who, you know, and it might be the person that was just way more gutsy than I am, uh, you know, sort of fearless. I'm like, okay, I got to just like dive into this the way that they would Uh, or someone who's sort of a mile a minute creative and think about how would they think about it. So I definitely do that. I think that's sort of the gift that a lot of people have have given me over the years is just the gift of great examples. You wrote in your pre-interview about a lesson you were taught while while you were um, at Clinique as a summer intern. So there was one idea that really yes. stuck with you. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, so uh, this is sort of embarrassing, but I, you know, as a summer intern, I was a little probably over over eager and set up a meeting with a bunch of the senior people, 
um, who very generously gave me, you know, I think it was 15, 20 minutes at her time. And I said, you know, what's the one thing that you think I should learn? Um, what's the one thing that you wish you, you knew about your career? And um, I remember this woman, her name is Susan Akkad. She's very senior um, at Estee Lauder. And she said, build the relationships before you need them. And pick up the phone. Now, again, this is pre-texting, but I think it's still, you know, super powerful. And it, it man, I mean, I'm here I am, however many years later, telling this story. And I'm very grateful for her for, for telling me that because I think the thing that was a profound difference between some of the cultural differences between being on Wall Street and finance and operating in a large organization is that, you know, how you treat people and what those relationships are that's everything. And when you're calling up and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm late on this project. I need you to do me a favor. People do favors for the people that they have a relationship with. Uh, and you can't just call that in. Um, and it actually makes life so much more fun, too. I mean, I like real, really, are you know, you, it's just every it's everything in terms of getting things done. But I think even more importantly, you know, I was with our board last week and I kind of got on the plane and coming back and I was like, you know what? I'm so lucky that I really had fun. I mean, who has fun at a board meeting when they're the president of the company and presenting where their business is, right? But if you actually really enjoy those people, again, it all goes back to I think you do better work. So I understand you're a mom of a four-year-old son. And of course, I have to ask the uh, work-life balance question. Um, when you have, you know, kind of a big job, is the expectation that you have to be always on? Is that just part of the territory? Does it just come with it? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of lose a little bit of the five minutes for yourself. Um, I remember yesterday I went, I went for a run, which I try and do once a week if I can squeeze it in. And I got coffee on the way home and I was like cherishing the five minutes <laughs> walking from getting the coffee to showing up home where all of a sudden you're back on again. And I was thinking, you know, I used to have these Saturday mornings where I would just kind of wander around aimlessly. Um, but I don't know. I mean, my son is like this amazing light in my life. So I wouldn't trade it for anything, but you definitely just downtime is just non-existent. Um, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. <laughs> yeah. It gets harder as they get older too, I'll tell you. Um, so tell us a moment in your career when you felt like you really started to feel success. You know, I remember how I felt when I first started working at Clinique and said, you know, these are my people. <laughs> and I kind of this had this moment of it clicking for me, of just feeling like that my brain was designed to work this way. And I think that's the best way I can explain to anyone when I think you found it, um, is that it just feels really natural. Uh, and I think it's sort of a funny thing because, I don't, you know, another mentor gave me a great piece of advice once that, you know, in school, you and your whole sort of academic career, you're always focused on how do I get better, you know, in an area that maybe isn't natural to me because I mean, all my grades got to be great, right? And actually finding success in your career is saying ditching the whatever percentage of stuff that you're really not good at and really focus on the thing that you're really good at. And it doesn't feel like work anymore. Uh, and that to me is when you really are in a lucky place. Um, you also mentioned that one of your biggest career snags was while you were working on a business that was a turnaround. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, I think it was certainly one of the more humbling experiences of my life and, you know, stepped into a business challenged with figuring out what to do with it and rebranding it and redoing all the product. And And I remember walking in and thinking, well, I'm a great marketer. I'll figure this out. And 
it was a lot harder than I thought, and it was extremely humbling. Uh, but in a weird way, I think I couldn't do what I'm, you know, again, I, I don't know. I don't really believe in anything being too terrible because I think it's all part of the journey. And now I look back on it and I'm like, well, from that experience, I learned all the things I probably shouldn't do. <laughs> and that's really important when you're trying to build a company is to know where all the things, all the places are that you could go wrong. Yeah, I think it's impossible to kind of rise up in a company or a corporation or in your career without stumbling. That's yeah. how you learn. And that's how you... It was you, my first time. That's and how I you think get I kind of was better. like, whoa, how did I not see this coming? Um and we made a lot of progress that I'm very proud of, but I kind of always felt like, oh, I could have done more. Yeah, everyone's journey is very boring if they don't have a bunch of snags across, you know, along the way, yeah. because that's what yeah, gives you, you the character. You have to remind yourself that in the middle of so them, for sure. It makes you stronger. For so. sure. It gets, I think it gets a lot easier and better as you get a little bit of perspective on it. It's really hard the first time. So what does success mean to you now? I think it's, you know, a little bit about what I was saying, where it just kind of clicks and you feel happy and excited and Maybe it's totally dorky, but I get excited on Monday mornings where I'm like, okay, I'm ready for it again. Um, I love people that are excited to go to work on Monday mornings because I feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I get I get sad leaving my little guy, but at the same time, I'm so passionate about what I do. Um, and it's just like it would never occur to me not to, not to kind of get out there and make it happen. What keeps you up at night? Not living up to my potential. Kind of like somehow... Like, I know, I mean, when I think about Supergoop, I'm like, it is all there. Every We've been given everything. Um, what scares me is, you know, like, just taking hold of it. So I also understand that you sit on the board of a nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. It's called Books for Kids. Uh, and what we focus on is basically there's some crazy statistics around how many words you hear up until the age of three, four, five basically determines the rest of your life. Because if you learn language and you think about how language impacts your ability to perform well in school, but also your ability to dream about what's possible. And you know, a lot of children in underserved communities don't have books. So what Books for Kids does is it goes in and it builds libraries in underserved communities, provides books, and most importantly, provides what we call library specialists and training for parents. I think that, you know, I've the, my personal passion in terms of what I hope to be able to give back to over time is all very focused on education because I think if we can just get that right, again, you get at the root of the issue versus trying to fix things later on. So I joined that board. I think I'm coming up on my fifth year now. Uh, and again, it was a really young organization when I started. It's been really amazing to, to watch it grow. I think every woman who I have interviewed so far on She Dynasty, as busy as they are, you know, obviously I see this pattern of, you know, how important it is for them to give back, give back to their community, give back to the world. And I think it's such a big part of what helps them be successful in their lives. So it's so refreshing to hear that. What is your actionable advice for those listening? Listen to your heart. Uh, I think there's a lot of temptation out there to... I have a theory that, like, if you just think about what you loved to do when you were you know, seven, eight, nine, before you really knew what you should do or how much you'd get paid doing it, there's often a lot of truth in that. Just be true to yourself. I think there's just so much of where I see people go wrong is when when they do what they think they should instead of what they want to do. I'm not afraid to keep shifting and learning, and, you know, I think everything is sort of a chapter and, um, you know, sort of being open-minded to things, I think... There's so much pressure to have it all figured out and to know exactly what you want. I think there's more pressure, quite honestly, now on young people because there's 
you know, everybody has their own business by the time they're 25. And I think take that off of yourself a little bit. Learn from other people. um, Learn from other businesses. I think it can be really powerful. I mean, I don't think I'd be where I was if I hadn't had all those other experiences and wasn't just really... I've stopped saying, like, what I'm going to be doing in five years. Like, I decided that that's a totally irrelevant question because the world changes and you change and you just kind of... As I become more open to possibilities, I think my career has gotten richer and more interesting. It's interesting insight you just mentioned. It seems like a lot of um, you know younger people are feeling this pressure to um, start their own businesses and be entrepreneurs versus going and working for a company. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, you know working for an organization and what that can bring to your life versus kind of just starting that? Just because if everyone started their own business, there'd be no one to work for you, right? We'd kind of have a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I and you know, and, and again, I think this all goes back. It's a very personal decision. I think there are people that should be entrepreneurs day one. Like that's just what their destiny is. Um, But I think to me, there is amazing opportunity to learn from other people. That's not, that doesn't make you less, less able or somehow less successful because you're going to go work for somebody else. Like there, I don't, I don't, I think of it as like, oh my gosh, somebody's going to teach you everything. Like what an amazing opportunity that is. You can learn a lot from a lot of people and, and really, Soaking it up is so important, um, and it kind of goes back to everything we've been talking about. Of everything I do now is because I learned from somebody else or another business. Agreed. All right. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions. Um, I'm going to bring Rohini back. I know she has a few questions that she'd like to ask as well. Yes. Hi. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, I actually rephrased my question a little bit as I listened. So talking about leaving a big billion dollar old brand like Clinique or Dior and then going to an indie brand. Uh, what about the challenge were you excited about? Like what about kind of the unknown excited you? I, you know, I think we were talking a little bit about sort of I learning that I was more entrepreneurial than I ever really knew. Uh, and I think I always loved to build things. You know, even in my jobs at Clinique and Dior, I was always in charge of a new department or building a new part of the brand or something like that because I just get really excited about creating something that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I felt like Supergroup had the underpinnings of something that could be really big. Uh, and I just like my brand radar went off. My product <laughs> brand radar was just like, oh, my goodness, what is this thing? You know, and every time I would go and I would talk to the founders, I'd my wheels would just go churning like crazy. I think that's like to me the best sign of if you're interviewing for a job that's a good fit for you is that you start thinking about like, well, what would I do day one? Um, mm-hmm. And you you kind of like I mean, I was just full of ideas and wanting to like get started um, before I even really had the job so yeah. I think it was a good sign Came natural again it was just, yeah it just yeah happened. yeah I want to just make a quick point that you just said I think people need to realize that you can still be entrepreneurial and work at a company you don't Absolutely. have to yeah I mean I th- you know I say to everybody on our team you are in charge of your world think about it as this is your part of the business run it the way you know you are an owner in it and then lean on your team when you need us. Um, and that's our expectation. Um, okay, next question. What was your pinch me moment or your most surreal moment in your career? You know, I've had a lot along the way. <laughs> I think it's, um, I think my my best pinch me moment has been, as I've talked to people that have joined Supergoop who have told me, you know, this is the best job I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And that is like, I mean, 
it's an incredible feeling. I don't know. It kind of goes back to being able to do something great for the world. And if your people feel that way, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Definitely isn't like that at every company. So that's amazing. I really touched on what you said about I feel like my generation doesn't really uh, necessarily hold importance in having a mentor. So I guess what would be your advice in looking for a mentor as a young person? Like what would you look for? I think mentorships usually happen very naturally, that you have some sort of connection to somebody that um, sometimes starts in the workplace and then you end up going somewhere else and you kind of stay in touch. That's a lot of the people that, um, that I've sort of relied on over the years. I think it's one of those things that kind of happens when you, you, you know it when you <laughs> it see clicks. it. Um, and it just kind of clicks like any other relationship. Um, and that's when it really becomes powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Amanda, I want to thank you. I know that thank you're you. very busy. And so to take the time to come here, I know is a big deal. So very appreciated. I think everyone listening is going to learn a lot. I know that I personally have a few takeaways that I would like to apply to my own life and my own business. So I really appreciate you passing that knowledge on. Well, thank you both for being here today. 